welcome to a Friday night edition of Navarra Live. I am Michael Walker and I am, of course, joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? My pleasure, Michael. It's a wonderful evening, but I'm very grateful to be here down the line talking to you. It is actually a wonderful evening outside, isn't it, to be all cooped up in here with all the windows closed. We have some great stories for you um, to make up for the fact that we're indoors. Um, Just Stop Oil have been subject to vigilante violence. You've probably seen that. We're going to talk about what that says about culture in Britain today. We've got a cringeworthy Matt Hancock video for you at the end and a Navarra Media exclusive story. Um, so you should definitely stay tuned for that. First story. Martin Ford is the experienced barrister who was tasked with investigating racism within the Labour Party. Last year, he delivered a report on that, which found that Labour had allowed a perception to develop that there was a hierarchy of racism operating within the party. He spoke to Channel 4 News this week about progress so far. Like all reports, it's about implementation. So you can make recommendations, and if they're not implemented, then you know the, the, the report was pointless. So I'm, I'm keeping a kind of wary eye on what is and isn't done. A working group has now been set up to look at implementation. His investigation received more than 1,100 submissions from members he says are desperate to see change. One of the areas of the report is the problem of anti-black racism within the party. Mm. When you were doing this report, what kind of evidence led you to that conclusion? Um, I mean, I chose my words quite carefully. What I said was that there seemed to be a perception of a hierarchy of racism and a perception that the sort of Me Too complaints and complaints of anti-Semitism were prioritised um, and that complaints in other areas, other, other types of racism, either took overly long <clears throat> or were difficult to make. Some people here, you say, sort of hierarchy of racism, they might think you're trying to diminish anti-Semitism. Mm which they would say the party has had a specific problem with, put into special measures by the Equalities Watchdog for. Mm -hmm. As I said, I've got every sympathy with the clearing up of the backlog. And obviously, as I said, self-selecting groups, some of the complaints were historical. I suspect most were uh, pre the, the Starmer era. What concerned me was that so many people had written in those, those terms. And I just, it was really just to say to the party, you may have a difficulty here. It's something that you should be, it seemed to me, look, looking at rather than possibly thinking we've dealt with the major source of complaints and the others can rather meander along. Ford also expressed his view about Diane Abbott's suspension. I mean, after he talks about that, you'll hear a pretty incredible revelation. If this is a standalone complaint where an apology was given within hours, I think, if not minutes, I can see no reason why that couldn't be dealt with pretty promptly. I think given her service to the party um, and, and the appalling racism that she's suffered throughout her political career, I think it would be a terrible shame if this dragged on. The black MPs I've spoken to don't want to speak on camera. They worried that if they do, they fear they'll lose the whip. But privately, one said to me that when it comes to anti-black racism, the party is lacklustre at best. Another said when it comes to progress, that the party was just going through the motions. It felt performative. And another really worried what this would do to the relationship between the Labour Party and the black community. So black MPs don't want to speak on camera to Channel 4 News about racism in the party because they're worried they'll lose the whip for doing so. Aaron, what does that say about the culture in the Labour Party right now? 
It's appalling. This should be a national story. It should be on the front page of every single newspaper. It should be the subject of one of James O'Brien's daily um, hours-long aneurysms, one of his emotional <laughs> breakdowns. Uh, it should be clearly subject matter for a series of Panorama exclusive uh, documentaries. It should be on uh, the, the 6 and 10 o'clock news. Um, it should be a question posed to parliamentarians on BBC Question Time. It should be the uh, subject matter for a panel debate on BBC Newsnight. We will get none of that, however, uh, because as I think is probably clear to much of our audience, these kinds of issues are only really covered by the media when they can be leveraged or discussed in certain ways. Now, that's not always malicious, although it often is. You know, I think a great many people in the media latched on to anti-Semitism in the Labour Party because they didn't like Jeremy Corbyn because they viewed it as a means of removing the leadership and changing the leadership. They might also have thought there's a major problem, but I, I think many, many people also viewed it instrumentally. Uh, but as well as that, there's the less malicious side to this, which is the media will pick up, pick up on a crisis within a political party when you have backbenchers and political figures within said party criticizing their own side. Uh, and of course, you had that every day. It was a daily event, really, for four years with Labour under Jeremy Corbyn, not happening now. So I think you have, on the one hand, a very toxic um, approach to what was anti-Semitism in the Labour, malicious. I think actually far bigger, particularly within the media, is that the guest bookers and the producers and the presenters and the people commissioning the features don't see it as a story because they don't see a party criticizing its own side. And I think to underscore that, you know, you can look at Baroness Walsey when she talked about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. That was the moment when a lot of people in the British media sat up and took notice of the issue. Um, and that's not happening in Labour. And it's not happening in Labour because, as was inferred there, many people in the Labour Party who would make um, uh, statements or claims in public about failures on the part of the party to deal with anti-black racism don't do so precisely because, I think correctly, they view that, that there will be a, a major political overhead, i.e. losing the whip, being disciplined, etc. And Navarra Media reported on that sort of intimidation and disciplining very early on in the, in the Starmer leadership. You know, letters were being sent to backbenchers even if you even if you um, just abstain on something, you run the risk of of losing the whip. This is without precedent in the Labour Party. Tony Blair did not impose that kind of discipline on the party. I don't think it is discipline. I think democracy. I think it's authoritarianism. I think it's an utter contempt for democracy. So a huge story here, uh, and the media, like I say, to go back to my fundamental point. Partly it's malicious, but also partly they're just lazy. If they don't see an internal bloodbath, they ain't going to cover it. And there won't be an internal bloodbath because the left aren't powerful enough to to make it one, I suppose. That, that, that seems to me a big difference between this row and the row over anti-Semitism in the Labour Party because then, you know, the right-wing MPs who, you know, had a problem genuine or otherwise, you know, it's not for me to say, but they knew that if they kicked up a fuss, they wouldn't lose the whip because they had the support of the media on side, right? So I think there's, a, there's an impression here that if people raise their voices, there's not going to be much backup from the people who decide what will be leading news night on an evening. Labour might be slow to deal with complaints about anti-black racism. However, they're very active when it comes to overriding democracy. The latest instance of that was a plan for the National Executive Committee to handpick Birmingham's council leader. Um, that would be an incredibly bold move, an unusual move, and it caused a huge uproar in Birmingham. Um, and now it appears the Keir's people have 
relented, um, at least to some degree. Patrick Maguire from The Times tweeted, This has Labour HQ blinked first in its standoff with its councillors in Birmingham. It appears to have abandoned plans to impose a leader on the local authority amid concerns over its dysfunctional climate. Councillors have just been told they will get a vote on NEC-approved candidates. The Birmingham Labour councillor tells me, quote, the NEC is already backing down and may now give us a vote on our leader, but this still isn't proper democracy. Their coup has failed. It's time for them to own their mistake and let us run our own AGM. Labour's NEC had said it would appoint the group's next leader, deputy and chief whip until such time it was satisfied the group could effectively run an AGM. Um, Maguire is told that position has now softened after local outcry and the MP Steve McCain urged Starmer to U-turn on Times Radio yesterday. So there was a prominent MP willing to speak up. And Patrick Maguire then says, this was the great untold irony of Labour's local successes. In England's great cities and elsewhere, the leadership does not trust its councillors to govern. So the irony being, you know, obviously... Labour celebrating their victories in the local elections, but they don't like the people who got elected, essentially, or don't trust the people that got elected. Aaron, how big a deal is this story, do you think? Huge deal. And like you say there, Michael, Starmer and really the coterie of people around him in, in London do not trust people at a local level. They do not trust them. They want to centralise as much power in Westminster. So I find it absolutely hilarious, right? You have this claim that Keir Starmer will be giving power away, economic and political power taking it as close to people as possible. And at the same time, he wants a Westminster leadership to determine who leads the council in Birmingham, one of Europe's biggest cities, Michael. This country's second city, a huge, huge place. Uh, and Keir Starmer thinks that he and his advisors know better than local people, particularly local Labour councillors, who's fit to, to run that administration. I mean, I find it extraordinary. You know, you have had, I think, a lot of very wishful thinking from liberals in this country. Well, Keir Starmer, he's a liberal. He wants to give power away. We'll have more city mayors. Devolution. What's the point of having a city mayor if the man is going to pick the candidates? I mean, that's the only inference I can draw here. If you had the National Party saying that they want to choose who's going to lead a council administration, it's not giving power away, is it? It's determining who your little water carrier is in, you know, in the southwest or the southeast or the northwest or the West Midlands. That's not giving power away. And I, I find it really remarkable that people are still buying this pup when it comes to Keir Starmer, giving power away. He doesn't want to give power away. It's the last thing he wants to do. And in terms of the councillors, Michael, this is manna from heaven for the Liberal Democrats, because what they say, and as I've said before, I think the Liberal Democrats are fundamentally the worst party in this, in this country. They go to Tory voters and say, we're not Labour. They go to Labour voters and say, we're not Tory. And they end up solving zero problems because they have no political agenda. They have no broader project for even local government, let alone national government. And this is manna from heaven for them because all they can say authentically and to an extent honestly is we're for local people. We're for local people. We're not told what to do by the, the big shots up in London, which is probably the case for Labour, less so the Tories, but nobody's voting for them really in large numbers right now when it comes to local elections. This is manna from heaven for the Liberal Democrats. And I think um, Labour councillors, whether on the left, on the right, on the centre, whatever, they know that. And I think it's going to really grind them down if over several years Labour struggle in local elections. And people might watch, how do they struggle? They won more councillors than anybody else. Struggling so much as they could be doing much better. And by the way, of course they could. You know, if you look at all the local elections between now and 2020, since Starmer became Labour leader, the Liberal Democrats have picked up more councillors than Labour. That's a, a quantitative fact. 
and I think eventually it's going to really anger and upset Labour councillors because it's, it's going to be undermining what they can do. They could be making far greater progress. And I think it's just completely at odds with the, the broader zeitgeist. You know, Brexit was about taking back control. And Keir Starmer listened to that. And his conclusion is, yes, we're going to take back control and concentrate it in Westminster with me and my mates. I was reading the Patrick Maguire sort of longer story about this. And he sort of cited sources close to Keir Starmer saying the breaking point for them was the arrest of Joe Anderson, who was Liverpool mayor. And um, that was as part of a corruption investigation. Apparently, he's no longer under investigation. They closed it. So presumably, he's not being charged. Um, but they said, you know, this shows that we can't just leave councils to do their own thing because, um, you know, they might end up being a bit of a mess. And so there needs to be some sort of top-down control. There needs to be some intervention from the centre. I mean, what do you make of that kind of argument? Yeah, they don't, they don't believe that local government should be a thing, right? I mean, local government means that, local, by the way, local administrations, they don't just do good things. If it was that simple, then everybody would do it, right? If you give power to people at a local level, sometimes there'll be mistakes. Look at what's gone on with the Labour Council in Croydon. They've made huge mistakes, that's not to say if you, do, if you devolve power as, as close to people and at the grassroots level as possible, it will always come up rosy. Nobody's saying that. It's about a sense of political ownership and also experimentation. If you allow power to flow away from the centre, different people try different solutions, try different things. Something works in this part of the country. Somewhere else they can imitate it and use it as a prototype, a blueprint. That's why I really think that devolving power is a smart way uh, to, to, to do things. If you look at the major accomplishments, I think, the enduring accomplishments of, of Labour over the last 20 years, because of course they were in power until 2010, uh, let's say 25 years. I think the, one of the enduring accomplishments is what they accomplished um, with the London mayoralty. And of course, Ken Livingston wasn't just the London mayor, he was also independent before that. They transformed transport infrastructure in one of the world's great cities in, in this country's capital, London, through the congestion charge, through you know better cycling infrastructure eventually, through greater emphasis on, on, on bus transport. And they have been visionary on that and they've set an example for the rest of the country. That's a huge accomplishment of Labour in local government. Keir Starmer doesn't care about these people. His advisors don't care about these people. And also, one should add, Joe Anderson was, he was arrested. So what? He wasn't charged with anything. So what? Keir Starmer could be arrested somewhere if he's not charged with anything. It doesn't, this, you know, everything is by public relations and peer. Oh my God, he's been arrested. Oh my God. You know, have to, you, have to, you have to put a stop to this. You have to sort it out. Really? So nobody in Keir Starmer's coterie has ever been arrested. I find that very hard to believe. Really? Of all the senior advisors? For anything ever? Come on. So he wasn't charged. I'm not, this is not a comment on Joe Anderson's character or, or his politics. I don't know the man. Clearly being arrested as a political operative is a bad thing, but he wasn't charged. You should be calm and just say, well, let's see what, where due process takes this. My God, Michael, the man used to be the director of public prosecutions. You would think he cares about due process and equality under the law. Apparently not. These people don't believe in anything. The only thing they do believe in is concentrating power amongst themselves because yes, they're playing a political game. They're also playing a status game. It's about maximizing their own status, making them feel as important as they can possibly be. And like I said a moment ago, when you look at the lessons of the last 10 years in this country with regards to Brexit, Scottish independence, just an increasing ambivalence and often animosity towards Westminster, that is, I think, one of the most toxic things that a political operative can do, which is to basically say, two fingers to the rest of the country, I'm giving as much power as I can to me and my mates in London. That will go down like a sack of spuds. 
the minute that Keir Starmer's in power. Ken Livingston, obviously a great example of how an attempt to micromanage local democracy from Westminster um, backfired. Um, of course, even when the seat of power in that case was quite close to Westminster, it's City Hall is just down the road from it. Next story. Over at NavarraMedia.com, we've been doing some cracking reporting on dodgy bailiffs. Back in February, Andrew Kersley reported that bailiffs were dressing up like police officers to scare tenants out of their homes. And today, my colleague Charlotte England has published this. The headline here, a bailiff was arrested for a firearms offence after a brutal attempt to illegally evict squatters. And it says hired thugs with weapons are now breaking the law to terrorise people on behalf of landlords. Let's take you through the story. So it relates to an eviction that took place at around 11pm on Thursday, the 4th of May. On that night, plain-clothed bailiffs stormed a disused textile factory in East London to illegally evict squatters. One of the squatters told Navarra Media this, they forced their way in and hit us and kicked us and threw us out. They were like, we're going to pepper spray you if you keep resisting. Another woman in her 20s said this. They came from every direction. They pushed the door and started pulling us out of the building. It was very physical. I was the first person that they pulled out. I was at the door, so I was fighting with them and trying to stop them from coming in. The bailiffs would not identify themselves or say who they worked for, but they were described as fuggish and left squatters battered and bruised. And you can see here some of the types of injuries sustained in the incident. Luckily, on the night of that attempted eviction, a passerby called the police who removed five or six bailiffs from the building and let squatters back in. The passerby told Navarro the bailiffs had been manhandling screaming young women inside. One of the bailiffs was arrested and charged for possession of a taser. And so one of them had a taser and pepper spray. Once again, it seems bailiffs are acting as a bit of a law unto themselves. And that's also what the experts told us. Housing solicitor Joseph Wright told Navarra Media this. It just seems that they, the enforcement companies, can pay whatever, £15 an hour or whatever it is they pay them, for basically a bunch of hooligans to put on fluorescent jackets and have a go. We're pursuing claims at the moment on behalf of people who have suffered really brutal injuries like broken bones, a fractured skull, loss of vision, as a result of being beaten up in the context of evictions. Of course, bailiffs usually only evict people on behalf of landlords. They don't normally do it willy-nilly. And the ownership of this building um, in this story is potentially another interesting part of the tale. Now, that's because it just so happens the empty property from which this attempted illegal eviction took place is owned by the family company of a former Tory councillor. Nizaflus is listed as a director and secretary of SAFE Textiles Limited. Fluss was a councillor in North London's Hendon Ward until she was voted out last year and is believed to still be deputy chair of the Finchley and Golders Green Conservative Party. Her social media pages show her at events with well-known Tory politicians, such as Rishi Sunak, and with flash-in-the-pan Prime Minister Liz Truss. She can also be seen here distributing flyers lamenting London's crime epidemic under Sadiq Khan's leadership and campaigning for Brexit. Lots of really interesting um, elements to this story I don't have time to go into details now about, but I do recommend you go check that out on navaramedia.com 
pretty shocking. Um, of course, um, uh, there were many people who didn't respond to Navarro Media for this as well. So you'll you'll see the link in the description um, and go to the full details. Um, Aaron, what I want to talk to you about is not so much this precise story. I want people to go to the website for that, especially as you know, lots of people involved. I don't want us to say something that could end up getting us sued. Um, what I want to talk about is a more general point, which is squatting. Um, these were squatters who ha were subject to this illegal eviction. And I say this because it's something I don't think we've really talked about before on the show. Um, and it used to be, I think, a, you know, a reasonably big part of both of our politics. I thought in the, in 2010, say, when I was around 18, I used to be part of sort of squatting movements in, in, in London and I was a bit more anarcho. I know as part of the student movements, you were involved in some, some squats, um, squatting got banned. I mean, 2012, yeah. so by the coalition government in residential properties. So this would have been a commercial property. So it's still legal to squat commercial properties. And it's not legal to squat residential properties. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about, you know, I suppose 10 years on or 11 years on. How significant do you think that squatting ban was? I think it was hugely significant, Michael. And the timing was not an accident, right? So like you say... The legislation is really, it's talked about in 2010. I think it's first deployed, you know, in 2011, and then it becomes statute in, in 2012. Um, and I think it's no accident that you get, obviously, austerity in 2010, a rising wave of protests. Um, and in response to that, obviously, not just very harsh punitive policing, incredibly punitive policing, which I think we haven't really returned to that level of punitive policing that we saw in 2011. It was just extraordinary. I remember going on a student demo in 2011, November 2011, only about six, 7,000 people, we were marching to the city. And this is a matter of fact, there were about 5,000 police officers. So imagine a protest with 5,000 people on it and about 5,000 cops, riot police, wearing NATO helmets and so on. You could not do anything. Um, and that, of course, was a response to the preceding 12 months. Millbank, the protests in December 2010, March 26th, and then, of course, that August, the August riots, orthogonally connected, let's say, to policing and 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 austerity and deteriorating standards of living, but not entirely overlapping. But broadly speaking, there was a there was a, a sense, I think, within the ruling class that you really had to damp down on protest and 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 disorder, as they would see it. Uh, and I think the legislation around squatting was part of that. I'm, I remember going into a squatted um, a squatted party venue, I think you could call it that. It was called the Oubliette. And it was in what was previously Walkabout on Shaftesbury Avenue. And it was amazing. So I went there, I think, December 2010. And there was cabaret. It was just incredible. It was like going into like late 19th century Belle Epoque Paris. And the real power of spaces like this is that they're liminal spaces they suspend a lot of the presumptions and, and core beliefs in, in the rest of the world around you. Now, people often use the word liminal space for like, you know, Occupy Wall Street or something, and there's a, you take a square, but it's not particularly pleasant to, to sit outside in a square on the concrete and get cold. But you can have squats, which are actually rather nice, and you can have conversations with people who you don't expect and open up all kinds of new possibilities and, and, and really engage the world in a, in a substantially different way uh, it wasn't just the Oubliette. There was a really free school in London. There were, there were squats, political squats, big P political squats. Um, and I think that really accelerated a drive in, in, in policy and, and changes in legislation, which, like say, culminate in 2012. That did a few things. Firstly, I think it stopped an incipient housing movement, which probably would have included squatting at its core. I mean, if you look at what's going on right now with rent in London, 
take it from the perspective, the standpoint of the ruling class was quite smart, wasn't it? Because right now you've got rent increases in places like London or Manchester year on year on year, 10, 15, 20%. Um, and the fact that squatting residential buildings is an impossibility has clearly curbed the chances of something like what we saw after the Second World War when you had demobbed soldiers, I'm not comparing the 2010s to the aftermath of World War II, but there is a precedent here to some extent, demobbed soldiers coming back to the UK, particularly major cities, and just squatting buildings. And it's not really talked about in our, in our sort of historic popular conversations, but a major reason why we have a massive boom of social housing is because that was one of the alternatives. People would just start taking buildings and living in them because they, had, they literally had nowhere else to go. So um, from the perspective of yeah, managing the housing crisis, they did it for a reason. And then secondly, like I say, hobbling really, an emerging anti-capitalist movement, which did have some sort of anarchist inclinations, uh, certainly hobbled that as well. A major shift because what you saw between 2010 and 2011 of this kind of uh, effervescent, like I say, emergence of political squats disappeared overnight. Um, quite similar, I think, maybe to the 1994 legislation introduced by John Major around free parties and raves. Of course, these squats weren't quite as big, but I think they looked at that legislation and they looked at the political moment it intervened in and they said, we don't want to get that point, right? We don't want the, the, the housing equivalent of 5,000 people raving in a field. We don't want squats of hundreds of people in, in major cities like London and Manchester. Let's not get to that point. Let's criminalize it first. And to an extent, it was incredibly, incredibly successful. I think there's a sort of a couple of things we've really lost from the squatting ban. I mean, obviously, it was a housing option for for, for some people in desperate need of housing. I mean, I wouldn't put forward squatting really as a solution to the housing crisis. Obviously, what we need to be doing is building loads more social housing. But I think in terms of in a long term way, you know, so even if we did have, you know, a good amount of social housing, I think there would still be a really important role for for squatting. And that's one. And because I think it, you know, I think culturally, it's quite important as a way of, you know, allowing young people to live cheaply in a city and getting on with the kind of things and sort of opening the opportunities that are normally only afforded to, to the wealthy. We're, we're always complaining, or we are complaining, but I mean, people in the mainstream media are also complaining. How come all the, the actors and comedians and, and pop stars, how come they all went to private school? How come everyone is so much posher than they used to be when it comes to mass culture? And I think a big reason is because no one can afford to move to a big city unless you're rich. And squatting was a, a big way of doing that. And this was big numbers of people, right? So in the 1970s, 30,000 people were squatting in London, 50,000 in the whole of the UK. And lots of the big cultural figures we think of from that time would have started out in squats in London. I think we've, we've really missed something by the, by the absence of that. The other is I really like that it was a very visible symbol of how property, property rights are not unconditional. They shouldn't be unconditional. That's not part of our social contract, really. This is often said like it's, uh, you know, something natural from God. So when they talk about um, say the rental reform bill, they say, well, it's their property. They can do whatever they want with their property. But that hasn't really been how property has been viewed, you know, throughout all of human history, really. It's, it's always been something which is conditional. And that's exactly what squatters' rights was to say. You, you may own this land in title, but if you're not using it, um, then someone else might be able to squat it, right? Real ancient law, real part of our sort of common law that people thought would be around for a while because it's a big part of, of British tradition and they just got rid of it. Um, lots of these things that we think are sort of a big part of British tradition and, and would be difficult to get rid of. Actually, it just turns out that a piece of legislation and backing from the right-wing press will, will make it happen. 
British artists over the last 30 years simply wouldn't be where they are without squatting. Tracy Emin, Damien Hirst, Jeremy Heller, all squatted. And then you have somebody as stupid as Tracy Emin voting Conservative in 2010. Talk about pulling the ladder up behind you. My God. This was a working class woman who has made a fortune out of art. Like you say, she could not have afforded to live in London without squats. And she's made that money. And then she goes and votes for bloody David Cameron in 2010. Just contrarian idiots. Sorry, I'm sure some people like Tracy Emin or whatever, but my God. You drill down into that. You benefit from squatting because you couldn't afford to get uh, housing. You do something with yourself. You make a ton of cash. You make a ton of status. And then you say to basically Tracy Emin, 30, 40 years younger, fuck you. My God, can you imagine something more selfish? So yes, Michael, it's really key to say that, you know, a lot of creative industries and, and, and big prominent people in, 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 in culture in this country wouldn't be where they are without squatting. Uh, and I, I actually find it remarkable there wasn't more of an outcry from precisely those people recognizing the fact that they wouldn't be where they are without it. Like I say, Damien Hirst. At that, at that point in 2011, one of the world's most prominent best-selling artists, although it should be added, best-selling because it seems to be the case that there were syndicates buying his art, which were connected to Damien Hirst to push up the prices, but that's a whole different, uh, whole different subject. And in terms of ownership, what you're describing there, Michael, is really... The concept of ownership in Roman law, um, which is completely alien to ideas of ownership pretty much around the rest of the world. So when you have Europeans um, engaging with indigenous cultures in the Western Hemisphere, you literally have two competing ideas of ownership. So Roman law ownership literally means it's mine, therefore I can do what I want with it, right? Uh, I own this pen. If I want, I can destroy it. It's none of your business. It's mine. I can dispose of it as I see fit. And the conception of ownership in indigenous cultures in the Western Hemisphere, and that might sound quite Orientalist, but this is literally, the, the, this is a general conception of property for most cultures in most places, which aren't as toxic and backwards as, as, as you know, liberal capitalism over the last several centuries, was ownership is more about stewardship. Yes, you own something, but broadly speaking, you're going to die one day. You're not going to be here forever. And you're leaving it for somebody else. And also you're part of a broader community and that ownership sits within that broader community. Um, so for instance, well, you have a pen, but you shouldn't destroy it because if you don't want to use it, somebody else can use it, surely. Right? So we have these competing ideas of ownership and, and this one of, well, it's my property. I can do what I want with it and I can destroy it if I want. I can let that house lie empty. It doesn't matter. People shouldn't squat on it. It's mine. This is a very alien idea of, of property uh, for many cultures in many places. And I suspect we're the stupid ones uh, in that regard. Uh, I think stewardship is a, is a far smarter, more sustainable way of understanding our relationship as individuals to the objects that surround us in daily life. Yeah, so it's my house and I can leave it empty if I want to is very much the, you know, the, the, the sort of culture of neoliberal capitalism that has become so hegemonic, but it wasn't always the case up to 2012. And in lots of countries, I mean, in Spain, they still have a big squatting movement, so it's still understood there that your right to property is not absolute if you've abandoned it, if you're leaving it empty, then people will have a right to live in it for a while. I mean, you can normally evict them, but it's normally after a, a fairly long legal process, which is why you get these liminal spaces, as, as Aaron was talking about. Let's go straight on to our next story. Just Stop Oil has been the target of new protest laws by the government, the subject of countless media hit pieces by the corporate press, and now the victim of vigilante violence by members of the public. This is footage of 
what happened when Just Stop Oil were protesting in East London. You can see a man there taking all of their banners and knocking a camera phone out of someone's hand. He then most unpleasantly pushes someone to the ground and then throws a video camera off into the distance. He's trying to push people directly out of the road. So very, very aggressive action there. Just a Oil had a good response to that on Twitter, I thought. I was very impressed with this. Content warning. Some violence is obvious and some is hidden. The hidden violence of approving new oil and gas when people are dying in floods and wildfires is extreme. Our government are guilty of drowning, death by smoke, inhalation, heat stress and starvation. And then in the thread, they sort of included lots of examples of this hidden violence. So they say, everyone understands how frustrating it can be to, dis to be disrupted. However, as of this morning, 13 people are dead and 13,000 people have had to be evacuated from their homes in Italy due to six months worth of rain falling in 36 hours. And then you can see this pretty dramatic picture of, I think they're police cars, which are underwater after a flood. And they're following tweet, another example of social catastrophe. 250,000 people are now homeless in Somalia due to extreme flooding, despite the country experiencing its worst drought in 40 years. The disruption we are seeing on Britain's streets is nothing compared to what's coming if we do not stop licensing new oil, gas and coal. Aaron, what's your sort of take on this moment, on, on, on that sort of vigilante action and the response to it? What does it tell us about British culture at the moment? I think people are drinking too much coffee. <laughs> I think... You know, I think they're probably, they're, they're not doing their mindfulness. Uh, I mean, Christ, man. I don't live in London anymore. I used to live in London, Michael. I lived there for 15 years. People in this city, particularly, are so highly strung. So highly strung. You'd be cycling, you're cycling, you undertake somebody cycling, screaming. I'm not talking about a driver or a car, by the way. I would never do that with a car. I'm talking about other cyclists. Screaming, so much anger. And you think, where the hell does this come from? If I was a driver, unless you're literally going to hospital, Okay, you can't move for half an hour. Call your boss. If you're going to a meeting, sorry, I'll be late. Or you're picking your kid up from school, I'm going to be late. Sorry. I'm delayed. Happens. 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 <laughs> Try getting on a train, okay? There's plenty of delays there. People somehow manage. Now, obviously, it's not ideal. And, and you might disagree with the protest. You might think climate change isn't even real. Why would you go around assaulting a stranger over something as stupid as that? It's crazy. I feel sorry for somebody that, that angry about something so ridiculous and, and fatuous. There's something clearly wrong with him. I think there's also something, by the way, I think clearly wrong with our society. I think he's crystallizing a lot of those problems. The major issue for me, Michael, is that that is venerated and elevated by the right-wing media. Good for him. Good for, really? He smashed somebody's phone up. He's assaulting somebody. Really? Is that, is that a good thing? Because you're going to be delayed by 20 minutes, half an hour. So if I'm on a train, Southwest trains, going to Bournemouth to see my old man, and it's delayed for half an hour, do I get to start hitting the you know, member of staff? Do I get to start smashing in the windows of Southwest trains? No, people would say I'm a thug. Because it's not an appropriate course of action. They might say, well, he's justified to be upset and angry about having to wait and about the delay. But that's life. We live in a democracy where people have a, a wide range of views on things. People are going to disagree on stuff. And sometimes they're going to express that through protest and dissent. That's life. It's not the worst thing that could happen, mate. You haven't got cancer, okay? You've not been told you've got a month to live. You're just going to have to wait in traffic for 20 minutes. Calm down. Reduce the caffeine intake. Get some better sleep. 
Where do you think this is going, though, politically? Because, I mean, Just Stop Oil, they, they, and I think Insulate Britain before them, have, have chosen a course of action which is very effective, very effective at getting headlines, uh, putting this issue, especially when they've got names such as Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil, because the mere mention of them means that you think, oh, yeah, we haven't insulated our houses. And, oh, I didn't realize that Britain was, you know, exploring new oil fields, right? So I think they're very effective on that level. They've also chosen a, a course of action which really is infuriating a lot of people in the country, like really making a lot of people angry. Obviously, that's absolutely no justification for pushing someone over and throwing a phone. But people are furious, which is why, you know, like when Keir Starmer is asked about the Public Order Act, he says, well, we do need to deal with things such as Just Stop Oil because he recognises that there is a lot of overwhelming anger about this kind of thing. Could it just keep escalating with them, keep doing these actions and people getting more annoyed and the law changing to make it harder and harder to do? And to, I, I feel like it's, it's almost difficult to see where this cycle of escalation is going to go. Well, speaking personally, if I saw these guys, I'd get out, I don't know, I don't, my, my, drop, my wife has the car, you know, I'd, she'd be driving and I'd get out and I'd say, good on you, well done, right? Like I say, if I wasn't going to hospital or something, um, I would say, We're well quite done. unusual no, as people though, aren't we? Because I would obviously do yeah. the same if I was, but... No, I know. And that, I was about to spend that qualification. Now, I know that not everybody has that. Um, I, I think it's important to say that, however, Michael, and there is a small subsection of the population who would probably do the same, right? Um, uh, but it's important to say, like, like you mentioned, not, not everybody feels that way. Look, if they're obstructing traffic, the police are there. Go to the police and say, look, there are traffic violations here. They're obstructing traffic. Do your job. I, 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 I wouldn't do that. I don't agree with it. But you can do that, right? That's what the police are there for. Um, but this whole, this whole praising people going around, you know, assaulting others, driving into people, cheering that on, particularly by the media, I think is incredibly dangerous because the minute somebody gets hit by a car and is hospitalized or dies, you know, the Julia Harley Brewers of this world and the Nick Ferraris, we say, oh, this is awful. It's a tragedy, you know, and they get all pompous and self-righteous because that's, that's literally the only setting these people have. They can't be like, Okay, look, you might not agree with it, but just, just chill out. Half an hour is half an hour. That's, that's life, right? There were rail strikes, Michael, before Christmas. I was coming in to, I think I was covering for you for some reason. Maybe you're on holiday or whatever. I remember coming in three or four days consecutively when there were no trains. And I was having to get the coach and whatnot. That's life. I still support the strikes. Now, even if you don't support the strikes, cheer up. That's life. What, we, it's, it's one of these really funny things, Michael, which we see in the 21st century. There are so many national myths in this country. Stereotypes, stiff off on it. If only, if only, the whole of the media in this country is just descending into permanent frothing rage and madness about the most minute things. Oh, oh my God, I'm in a car for 20 minutes. Try a traffic jam. <laughs> Try going on the M25 on a bank holiday. What do you think that is? I'd like to see you debate the... Um... That angry man, I think that could be an entertaining piece of content. Maybe it wouldn't be too productive, but it would, um, I think it would be entertaining, at least. Let's go on to our next story. We've got a couple more to get through. The New Statesman has published their list of the 50 most influential people on the left. They've called it the left power list. And they've put Rachel Reeves, who you can see in the middle there on top of it. She comes in first, just one above Keir Starmer um, on the New Statesman cover. You can also see Gary Lineker, he's number five. Mick Lynch is number 19. David Attenborough is at number 23. He's on the left there. And Zara Sultana is number 47. 
And there are also two Navara faces on the list. Ash Sarka comes in at 45. This is what they write about Ash. The 31-year-old activist, self-described communist and contributing editor at Navara Media is a regular BBC Question Time panellist with more than 400,000 Twitter followers. Her sharp-witted broadcast style, interspersed with theoretical analysis, makes her perhaps the closest person Britain has to a left-wing influencer. Sarkar resigned her Labour membership in 2021, but remains one of the left's most ubiquitous commentators. And Aaron Bastani is number 50. Navarra Media, which Bastani co-founded in 2011, predated Corbyn's Labour leadership and has outlasted it. Rather than fading, as some predicted, the organisation has grown in prominence and now has 323,000 YouTube subscribers and a staff of 24. Bastani's ideologically heterodox approach means he enjoys increasing influence across the media. Um, he's given a TED Talk and is a contributor to the post-liberal site Unheard. His first book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, was published in 2019, and his next will assess the politics of ageing. Um, I'm, of course, incredibly proud of both of my colleagues. Not at all bitter, um, not at all disappointed um, that my name didn't make it to the list. I'm sure it got lost on a post-it note somewhere if I was considered you know, anyway, maybe next time. Um, in any case, um, not everyone has been as congratulatory as I have been. Um, this was part of a discussion about the list on the new New Statesman podcast. Have you had any feedback or even backlash on this list? I was at a dinner yesterday with some Labour and progressive policy people and the name that kept coming up was Alistair Campbell for different reasons. Yeah. Some absolutely love his podcast and are impressed with his post-political career. Others are sort of alarmed by the rehabilitation of his <laughs> reputation as this sort of polite voice of reason. Yeah. What, have you had any feedback, Rachel? Um, there's been some pushback, I think, from people within Labour against people like Aaron Bastani, who they probably have taken a lot of criticism from. I think that I've been asked why there aren't more trade union leaders on the list, but I guess you'd expect that from Labour Party politicians. <laughs> um, trade union leaders. In, indeed, and a lot of the trade unions are actually vying for influence within the Labour mm -hmm. Party at the moment, so they, they want their name on there, they want to be known as having power and influence. So, yeah, along those lines, like I said. We should say that Owen Jones tweeted the list, but said, how do I get myself off this list? <laughs> Which I thought was a great response. Aaron, you have something in common with Alistair Campbell now. You are both influential and both controversially so. Um, what do you make of it? I think fundamentally what the New Statesman's done is they've put lots of people who are liberals and on the left and they've sort of put it together. And they think that liberals are on the left. I think it probably doesn't help Justin Welby's case when he's saying, I'm not partisan, I'm not political. And then he's put on a list of the 50 most influential people on the British left. Um, what really made me laugh though, Michael, because these things are just a bit of fun. It's a bit of clickbait. It's a bit of clickbait. And it drives traffic to the New Statesman site. Nobody takes it seriously. First and foremost, me or Ash. And then you have Labour MPs pushing back. This is, this is code for through a hissy fit, right? Pushing back because you've included Aaron Bastani and uh, Ash Sarkar. Look, you've won the political debate within, we well, not even the political debate, you don't have any politics. You've won the debate within the Labour Party. You've crushed the left. The Conservatives are falling apart. There are some polls out there giving you guys a 200 lead a majority of 200. I mean, it probably won't happen, but still, the polls are out there. And you care about whether I'm on a, a list of people who are influential on the left in the new states. And these people want to run a country of 65 million people, Michael. These are the people that be legislating around artificial intelligence or, or, or apparently addressing the housing crisis. I don't think so. If they're that trivial and small-minded and petty and pathetic, I don't think so somehow. So yeah, look, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of fun. It's a bit of a laugh. And the only people taking it seriously are the least serious people in British politics, the Labour right.
All right. While accepting it's a bit of fun and a bit of a laugh, we are going to look at the top 10. Um, I think it was compiled by George Eaton. So he said it was put together according to two criteria, ability to influence policy and ability to change minds. Um, and these are the top 10. Rachel Reeves, one. Keir Starmer is number two. Morgan McSweeney is number three. So he's sort of Keir Starmer's campaign's director, also masterminded his leadership bid. Uh, Martin Lewis, number four. Gary Lineker, then Wes Streeting. Sue Gray, um, who did the the Partygate report and is now in line to be Starmer's chief of staff. Angela Rayner, Christina McEnay and Torsten Bell is from the Resolution Foundation. Christina McEnay is the general secretary of Unison. Aaron, none of those people, you know, from our wing of the left, really. What power does our wing of the left have now? What power do any of these people have, Michael? You know, Rachel Reeves is the most powerful person, influential person on the left in this country. I think there's some wisdom to that rather than her her rather than Keir Starmer, because she actually has a vague idea of what she'd like to do with power, um, whereas Keir Starmer does not. Uh, and you might think, well, what does she want to do with power? She basically wants to do what the Conservatives are doing, but probably spend an extra £20 billion a year on decarbonising the economy. I mean, that is that is a laudable thing. I mean, the rest of it isn't. But at least she has a plan. I don't think Keir Starmer does. Um, what influence does the left have? I think people like Ash and myself are in there because maybe cultural. And I think what will be interesting, Michael, is after 2024, if, if there is a Labour government, the media will be very happy to elevate people from their left criticising Labour. The media will be very happy to have Michael Walker going on the BBC or ITV and Sky criticising Labour because they're failing to address the housing crisis, because it makes for good TV. Right now, they're not that keen because it's not great TV, right? The story is the Tories are collapsing. What they love is Tories going on the TV to attack the Tories. Or when there was Corbyn, Great TV, civil war in the Labour Party, the Labour Party, endless civil war, when will it end? You don't want it to end because it's great for TV and for radio and for clicks on your stupid little websites. So uh, I think the worry is, it's part of the reason why I think there was pushback through these Labour MPs, is that clearly Navarra Media is a moderately successful organisation, thanks to our amazing viewers, listeners, subscribers and readers. Um, it is clearly something which has survived the Corbyn era and is growing and is strong and, and it kind of works. Uh, and we're finding a bigger audience all the time. And I think for people on the Labour right who have no ideas, who don't even believe in politics, they believe in status. This is a status game for them. Um, they are still quite concerned, I think, about the spectre of a socialist left which may have access to the public at large. They don't like Owen Jones. They don't like Ash Sarkar. They don't like Navarra Media because, you know, we're still there and there's still the embryo potentially in five, 10 years of a successful left populist project, which can reach out to plumbers, NHS workers, office workers, grads, non-grads, old, young, because we're trying to drive an agenda on class politics, the housing crisis, cost of living. We have something to say to multiple audiences rather than what you get with the Labour right, which is, uh, we're the Tories, but we're, we're, we're five points to the left of the Tories. Five points, if that. In government, that's not really going to function. In opposition, it clearly is, by the way, because the polling shows they're doing pretty damn well as long as the Tories collapse, which they are. They're happily obliged in that regard. So I can understand why they are angry and upset, to an extent, as pathetic as it is, about the inclusion of people like Ash and myself because they want the left to disappear. And like you say, Michael, even if we don't have massive influence right now, it's clearly diminished from 2019, right, where there was a national conversation around things like public ownership in a way that simply disappeared because Labour is no longer advocating those things. I think even the possibility of that returning is too much for people on the Labour right.
No, I think that is exactly right, actually. I think that's that's very well put because, I mean, if you remember back to immediately after the 2019 general election, there was this huge urge from the Labour right to put a cordon sanitaire around anyone um, to the left of Ed Miliband and basically say, these people should not be listened to ever again. They should never be allowed on the television. I remember sort of Aisha Hazarika lashing out at Ash Sarkar saying she should never go on television again, right? And that's failed, hasn't it? That, that, that hasn't worked. There is still a demand for left-wing politics. They haven't managed to say these people are all um, electoral failures and anti-Semites and no one should talk to them again. And sort of appearance on lists like this is kind of evidence of that. And I suppose that's why um, there is this backlash to the inclusion of, of people on that wing of the left. Final story. Matt Hancock has been back on the airwaves and he has an important message. He is, in fact, a human being. But what has happened to you? Yeah. Over the past two years, yeah. you know, in office, then you're forced to resign over in relationship falling in love with, with somebody, yeah. falling in love. Well, the you know, falling you're in love with breaking the, yeah. your own rules. Yes, yeah. you're, you're the actually, one. Actually, just to stop, 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 stop. You're Lewis, the one who stop, mentioned. Stop, 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 stop. You're, I am a Lewis. Stop. I'm a human being, right? Yeah. Okay. Secretary of State. Don't interrupt me now, because I'm going to say something that I'd like you to listen to. I'm a human being. John's question is leading up to essentially how do you cope with this amount of stuff as a human being? And part of the answer is that, of course, politicians, you know, have to take the rough with the smooth. And I have learned a huge amount about resilience. Um, but I also now am just not interested in having people um, just go over old coals again and again and again um, it's not it's not fair and it's not right because we are human too. Of course, and I have I, you know I, I, I've I, said I've, this... I, I have put myself through the most extraordinary amount of scrutiny over everything that happened, um, and the inquiry will rightly do that again in a proper format for learning the lessons for the country. And I'm enthusiastic about playing my part in that, um, but I'm also now perfectly willing and totally within my rights to say. But you chose to be in public life. You chose to be the Secretary of State. You could have walked away at any Absolutely. time. So it is perfectly legitimate for people and journalists to continue to ask you questions about your record in that time. It was you were by your own admission. It was an enormous event of yeah, global import. Right. And what I'm saying right is yeah, absolutely you. and 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 I have well, answered... You talk about resilience, but it doesn't sound very resilient when you're answering that. No, because in that because way. actually, you know, I'm now leaving parliament, right? Um, I care about the future of the country and about the future of the Conservative Party. So I'm, I, I want to talk about these things. Um, but I'm also, uh, uh, but I'm also a human being, right? Of course. And one We're of the reasons, so I'm absolutely up for scrutiny right. on the substance. But I'm also, I, it, I think it's also reasonable to say enough is enough. Enough is enough. Um, Relaunching a campaign. Enough is enough. Matt Hancock has been asked enough questions. He's subjected himself to an extraordinary amount of scrutiny, such as going on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here and getting paid 320 grand for it and giving 10 grand to charity and saying he did it for charity. Uh, I'm not sure I trust this guy's motives. In any case, not content with being a human being, Matt Hancock also wants you to know he is a normal one. Um, this is the former health secretary speaking to the bright blue conservative group. I'm a normal person. Now, I'm not a conservative MP. Right. And and it's just like, just be normal, like the people who we represent. That's what we need to do. That's a really good starting point. <laughs> Has he um, managed to be normal, Aaron? No. And Michael, going back to that first clip with um, 
with Lewis Goodall. What did I do wrong? I fell in love. My sin, my, my apparent, my misdeed is I fell in love with somebody. Matt, you had a wife and children who you humiliated in public. And by the way, each time you do this little thing, I fell in love, you're still humiliating them. Don't you have a responsibility to them? Now, I understand not all relationships last forever. That's, that's life. I get it. Um, and people find other people. They move. I get it. But I think most people would say, look, I feel bad for what happened. I, I'm an adulterer. I cheated on my wife and the mother of my children. That's happened. And out of respect to them, I'd rather not talk about it. I'm very happy with Gina Colodangelo. By the way, what the hell does she see in this guy? But park that. It's kind of fatuous point. The important point is he is repeatedly humiliating his wife and the mother of his children and his children, and he doesn't seem to see a problem with it. I fell in love. What, are you the victim here? Are you the victim? Like you say, with your 300 grand check for a mime celebrity? Crazy. How the hell is this guy a politician? It really does underscore the, the, the caliber of people in public life in this country. And this is something, Michael, I, I really want to say this. I've spoken to lawyers, people in finance, successful people, four or five times now in their 50s, early 60s. And they say, you know what? I regret not going into politics because I, I thought it was full of talented people. I would do my own thing. But the country's buggered. The political class is useless. They can't do anything. And I feel partly responsible because people like me didn't take up that challenge and we wanted to do other things. And I think there's something to that, right? I think for 20, 25 years, particularly on the conservative side, but in Labour too, but I think particularly on the conservative side, the kinds of people getting into politics, frankly, nobodies, losers, hucksters. You know, what would Matt Hancock have accomplished if he hadn't gone into politics? What is this guy good at? What's he going to do? What, so, as, or, you know, okay, Blair, you might not like the guy. I don't like the guy. I think, he's, I think he should face trial in The Hague. He's got an incredibly powerful charisma. What's, what's Man ha Matt Hancock got? I don't get it. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And he still thinks he's the victim. He's one of the most charmless, strange, unintelligent people I've seen elevated to such high status in this country. And I, I find it utterly inexplicable. Um, well, if, if, if you're feeling frustrated, I think Alex Hale has actually given us something to look into with a fiver. Thank you so much. Please keep up the great work. You guys give me faith. Anyone else feel like we're overdue for a spiritual revolution? Where's the Buddha at? Aaron, are we due a spiritual revolution? Well, you know, spiritual revolutions can go right as well as left, Michael. I wouldn't like us to become a theocracy either. Um, I'm quite a spiritual person. I'm a religious person, but, um, uh, I think people probably, people should probably try and tune themselves into higher values, which aren't about commodities and capitalism and short-termism and, and, and try and stay more connected with the people around them, their loved ones, other human beings. I mean, if you want to call that spiritual, great. I mean, I, in most societies, I think any anthropologist would tell you that's the stuff that's actually valued. There's nothing spiritual about it. It's very normal. Um, and this idea that, you know, human nature is living in a semi-detached Barrett new build with a a Mazda hybrid and you go to your job and that's life, that's normal, that's human nature, is so reductive. You know, human nature encompasses so much more than that. Um, you might want to call parts of that spiritual, sure. And, and those needs need to be met and they're currently not being met in our, in our society. And I, and I think you know, the enchantment of politics, and that's what Max Weber calls it, I think that's a part of it. But of course, the enchantment of politics doesn't just go left, it can also go right. I believe in nature and I believe in focusing on the breath. 
you breathe in and out of your nose while trying to feel the air touch your skin. Very helpful to relax. Um, you can try that on the weekend. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. Thank you, Michael. And I want to quickly say, Michael Walker will be on that list of left left fluences in 2024. And to, to help us do that, why not support Navarra Media? Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Although those funds are not going to go towards bribing George Eaton. They're going to be going to, to building this into an ever more large and successful organization. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. We'll be back on Monday at 6 p.m. for another live stream. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.